Welcome to the podcast in the week of April 3rd, the fifth Sunday in Lent, and this week we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, the one that was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii in the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and he had kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. And Jesus said, Leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The word of the Lord. All right, so it is the fifth Sunday in Lent, and as you probably noticed this uh, week, the lectionary changed Gospels on us to the Gospel of John. We are thrown into this narrative uh, of Jesus that happens six days before Passover. And I guess to a place for us to start this week is just to talk about the end of this text, because I think that's usually the most referenced uh, portion of this uh, particular story. Um, this quote that you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is something that I've been asked uh, many times at Mission Hills, actually, over the years, uh, and, and oftentimes we, we sort of get focused in on Jesus' words at the end of this and take them out of um, the narrative context in John and out of the original context in the book of Deuteronomy, in which this, uh, this line that Jesus is u- uses, you will always have the poor, but you do not always have me, comes from Deuteronomy. And it's actually God commanding generosity to, to the poor. So, uh, th- so this text is definitely in John, not some blase indifference to poverty, because we know from all of our recent conversations in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is way of being and community building is specifically concerned with abolishing the political and religious systems of exploitation, injustice that lead to all kinds of of inequity and poverty. So I think one of the ways to, to think about this phrase, and we can of course talk about it on Sunday, is to understand uh, how Jesus is using this phrase to uh, to talk about and consider Mary's act of devotion. Uh, and I think a, a helpful way of thinking about this is that, that Mary's act of love is the same depth of love uh, Jesus is saying that should be given directly to the poor and oppressed. Uh, you know, a question for us is, do we care for those on the margins of modern life uh, with a outlook of, of charity or a kind of... Um, the kind of love that looks a little bit more like pity, or sees them as the very location of God. And I think the, the depth of Mary's expression of love, it, what she's doing to Jesus, Jesus is saying that's the same kind of love that should be directed towards the poor and oppressed. So that might be somewhere we could take the conversation on, on Sunday. Uh, we all know that Lent is a time of self-reflection and contemplation on on both the, the death of Jesus and our own mortality. And this story I find to be, I get why it's, in, it's given to us in the season of Lent, because it's, it's just incredibly rich with its 
imagery and, and really the expression of the energy of the senses when we're talking about uh, life and death. And you, you probably know that this story follows Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. The, the beginning of the story sort of alludes to that fact in, uh, in just the previous chapter. So I imagine that there in this, in this story, in the house of Lazarus, in, in his home, there's this incredible energetic space uh, of their relationship, Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Lazarus, just be, from what they've recently gone through. Um, and we can imagine all of this imagery, the, the aromas of the food, the, the chatter between good friends, uh, and a deep appreciation for the preciousness of life. I think we've probably all had moments where we've lost loved ones or uh, a friend, and maybe we've even been at a, a, a memorial or a funeral where there, between the people that, that gather in that space, there's an intensity of love and awareness uh, for the gift of life. And I, I feel that in this, in this story, that there is just this intensity of love for the gift of life. And maybe you've experienced a similar uh, scenario to our story where uh, maybe you almost lost uh, a friend or a loved one, and now, now life is colored with the acute reality that there's only today. We only have today. There's only now. It's as if when, when we have moments in our lives where something happens like this, we get a kind of a glimpse into a spiritual space where we're, we're sort of able to see, it's like we're broken open to what really matters in life. And I think our story feels like that. As Mary uh, experienced the death and being raised back to life of Lazarus, and anticipates the potential death of her friend and teacher. Um, as Natalie Portman's character in Garden State would say, she's in it. She's in it. Mary recognizes something that Judas frankly does not. Primarily that what she is doing can never negate the care for the poor, but it, it deepens it. Uh, and she... <laughs> I imagine she doesn't have time for his whataboutisms, which we still hear today all the time. Um, but I think if we're honest, most of us are probably more like Judas in the story, pragmatic, practical followers of Jesus. Um, we've spent a lot of our lives probably being busy doing what we think other people want us to do, uh, spending our lives how we think uh, God would want us to spend our time. Uh, I think about the phrase, what would Jesus do? The phrase that they, they taught us growing up. Uh, trying to make sure that uh, our American culture churned out a generation of really well-behaved, polite Christians who didn't cuss and went to church on Sunday. I mean, we're, we're such products of a doing culture and capitalism, uh, you know, sort of mapped on top of that, that, um, you know, we were always told that we knew uh, we were only worth what we've accomplished, whether that's implicit or explicit. You know, so doing, 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 accomplishing this and that, looking for, always looking for the approval of others or the reaction of others. You know, really just this pursuit of, are we good enough? Have we done enough? 
Uh, man, most of us are, are more Judas than Mary, I would imagine. But it's important that in this text, Mary shows us an entirely different way. And Jesus and the gospel authors consistently remind us that doing is not living. Doing is, is definitely not living. I, I think about the, the verse um, where Jesus says, think about the, the wild lilies growing over there. They don't work up a sweat toiling for their, their wants or their needs, and they don't think about clothing. Uh, Mary demonstrates this kind of spiritual awareness, this different spiritual path than one of doing. In, in so many ways, she's a mystic. She's a mystic that has awakened to a reality of the abundance of the kingdom of God, and she is fully present there. She's fully in it. And her example as a, as a person awakened to the reality of this kind of life, I think paves a way for us to talk about how we are to approach talking about our lives and our deaths. I think about even uh, Paul expresses a similar uh, understanding and, and awakening at several points, just a, a few that I thought of uh, to, when he says, to live is Christ, to die is gain. He also says, I think in, in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. In other words, if, if, if nothing is outside of God, we exist in God. And there is nowhere to go and, and nothing to fear in death. Uh, the, the, the New Testament line, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing exists outside of God who infinitely holds all things together. And we've, we've talked about it so many times at, at Mission Hills, how, how much of Western Christianity uh, is a sterilized, death-avoiding institution. And, you know, until recently, many Protestant churches, of course, didn't observe the season of Lent. And probably there's some uh, death avoidance even in, in many that do. Uh, but we have these stereotypical images of a Christian afterlife or heaven that depict a clean and tidy world where everyone is in white robes floating on streets of shimmering gold. It's so, it's so sterilized. And the imagery is so different than the imagery of a text like the one we read in, in John. Um, but, I mean, death avoidance isn't just a, it's not just a Christian game. It's a, it's a billionaire's game. I mean, a few weeks ago, <laughs> I read an article in, in Vice that <laughs> was talking about uh, Mark Zuckerberg being, quote, aware of his mortality uh, in his pursuit for the, the di digital metaverse that they're creating. And... Uh, in January, Jeff Bezos invested in an anti-aging startup for his attempt to defy death. And we know there are ongoing projects to map the human brain to upload a person's consciousness digitally to theoretically allow someone to live forever. Um, if you've seen the, the Amazon show Upload, uh, it's about this idea where people are, uh, who die are uploaded into a digital heaven uh, the, the futurist Ray Kurzweil for a long time has been uh, one of the like forefront names on this pursuit to live forever. And he believes that people of the future will live forever as technology and medicine continue to advance. It will allow folks to, to essentially outrun their death. 
So whether, so whether it's the avoidance of death from a religious or a scientific endeavor, it's, I'm trying to say it's the, the anxiety about dying pre- prevents us from truly living. It's this anxiety to avoid death by whatever means, religious or scientific, that actually prevents us from truly living. But our Gospels embrace death as a part of life. And one of the powerful dimensions of the season of Lent is that it invites us to see that death actually brings us closer to life, not away from it. And I think we see this truth expressed particularly by Mary in the story through her intimacy with Jesus, in the, in the way the Gospel of John uses really visceral images of their gathering. I mean, if we think about the story, we can imagine the scene of her approaching Jesus with uh, an overabundance of perfume, her letting her hair down, breaking a Jewish custom, uh, and then slowly anointing his feet and then using her hair to go over and dry them. I mean, Mary is both our example of how to love and even how Jesus will uh, treat his disciples at Passover. And as, as this home holds space for life and death, it's infused with this intensity of presence. And I think this presence is, is a quality of love uh, that, that, can't, that can't die. Uh, I think of the, the line from Cynthia Bourgeau, she, she says, love is stronger than death. And there's this presence, this quality of love in this story, and we can imagine in this home, uh, that is beyond death. And we've all experienced this at, at some time in our life, whether it's uh, with a person or uh, a pet, that there's, there's such a, a depth to the love that it cannot be contained by anything. And Mary is an expression of the absolute embodiment of this kind of love. And as you said, it, <laughs> it goes completely over Judas's head because at some level he still sees life as a zero-sum game and the resources are limited. Um, it reminds me of the dynamic between uh, the two main characters, husband and wife, in the film The Fountain. The wife is dealing with a terminal diagnosis of a brain, of a brain tumor, and her husband is actually researching frantically to find uh, the cure for her. And the wife is writing this novel that follows symbolically her journey in a conquistador's quest for the fountain of youth and immortality. And it's precisely through her approaching death, approaching her own death, that allows her to see beauty in every moment and in everything. And that death should not be avoided, but embraced. And this, this during the movie, this revelation that she has is something that she's trying to, to show her husband and invite him into this like real rich experience of her life that she's discovered through her diagnosis. But he, he isn't able to, to be fully present amid her, her diagnosis. Um, I, in, the, in the movie, she says, uh, death is the road to all. And I think Mary would agree. Mary 
is showing us that we cannot truly live unless we are first willing to embrace death. When we're willing to live in this liminal space between our arriving and leaving, she's expressing the truth that we only exist here and now. And the one thing that matters is what is right in front of us. That's when we know the significance of life, the gift of life. And in the home, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, among laughter and tears, the lingering smells of a well-cooked meal, we can also awaken to the realization that our lives are already marvelous and each day is already extraordinary. We can recognize this in the divinity of our own breath, standing up and sitting down. And for Mary, this, this kind of way of being in the world leads her to an abundant generosity that still seems so absurd to the pragmatist. How are we to live in light of our own deaths? How are we to exist in light of a Christian path that doesn't fear death because we are transformed by death? So may we come to know that death is the road to all. And as always, I look forward to our conversation on Sunday. And as we approach this week, may we love God, embrace beauty, and live life to the fullest. Be well. Dad.